0: When Marjorie Massow walked into 20th Century Fox here, it was to replace a cashier who had the flu. But anything can happen in the fabulous city, particularly to a pretty girl. Marjorie was noticed, tested, and signed for a role in a film, I Married a Soldier. An Iowa Falls, Indiana product, she lived in New York for several years before landing in Hollywood. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkies. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two multipass. Multipass. You You know it's multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing. Well, hello there. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is episode 78, and I'm your host, Jeffrey Kelly, an old man from the Midwest. The idea of this podcast is to force me to watch films I wouldn't normally watch, and for that, I depend on you, the listener. So next time you see a film that causes you to scratch your head and say, what the heck was that? Keep me in mind. I'll have information on how you can reach me at the end of today's show. However, today, though, I'm going to do something a bit different. I'm going to tell you the strange tale of Madge Meredith. Meredith was an American film actress who appeared in numerous films and television series between 1944 and 1964. But her career isn't the reason why her life is so interesting. It's because she was arrested and sent to federal prison for kidnapping and assault. At the time, she was an up-and-coming actress, but then, well, you'll see. Her real name was Marjorie Mae Massow when she was born on July 15, 1921, in the small town of Iowa Falls, Iowa. She was the third child out of five, four girls and one boy. Her parents were Frank and Laura Massow. Her father was a construction superintendent. They were a lower-middle-class family and didn't have a lot of money but always seemed to make ends meet. As a child, she suffered from stuttering, especially under nervous situations, but vowed to overcome it as she dreamed of being a Hollywood star. In an article in the newspaper column Hollywood Reporter in August of 1944, they wrote, In school, the teachers would ask the children what they wanted to be when they grow up. A farmer, one would say. An artist, another one would offer. Marjorie always had the same answer. She knew that someday she would be an actress and a good one. She became an excellent speaker at Iowa Falls High School. It was a dramatics teacher, Mrs. Carolyn Gallagher, that took the young girl under her wing and helped her get a scholarship at the Philadelphia Rice School of Theater in Oak Bluff, Massachusetts. But there was a problem. The scholarship only provided money for tuition and the family didn't have money for living expenses. She later recalled, But an acting career always meant so much to me that I went east anyway. Sure, I'd find some way to support myself. To earn money, she would scrub floors, clean dormitories, wait on tables, anything to get by. And she was always acting any chance she got. And while there, Marjorie was involved in a murder. Well, anyway, she was called to testify in a murder. A newspaper on October 8, 1940, reported Actress testifies. Says door leading to dormitory open on night of murder. A pretty young New York actress testified today that she found the door leading to the Rice Playhouse dormitory open the morning Mrs. Clark M. Smith, 73, Boston Bible student, was slain in an upstairs room. Miss Marjorie Massow, 19-year-old brunette, who was studying diction at the Playhouse School, appeared as a defense witness at the trial of Ralph Huntington Rice, 54, New York voice teacher, charged with the killing of Mrs. Smith, one of his students. At the Rice School before the sun rose on June 30th, 1940, during a thunderstorm, 70-year-old Mrs. Clark M. Smith was murdered by someone who climbed in through her window. There were two suspects, 54 year old Ralph Huntington Rice, a drama teacher, and an electrician and handyman named Harold Tracy. Apparently, Tracy had been dating Marjorie, whose dorm was right next to the murder victim's room. It is thought that Harold Tracy, who was very drunk, climbed in through Clara Smith's window, thinking it was the young pretty Marjorie's window. Surprised by finding Clara, who woke and came after him, beat her to death. After four summers at the school, she traveled to New York where she spent a year at the Theodora Irvine School of Theater working as a waitress to make ends meet. She found roles in small parts on Broadway. But her dream was not to be a stage actor. It was to be a Hollywood star. So the 20-year-old moved to the West Coast. And her family had so much faith in her, they came with they wound up living in a small Culver City bungalow almost in the backyard of MGM. Like thousands of other pretty girls with stars in their eyes, she did everything she could to make her dreams come true. She registered at Central Casting, attempted without success to join the Screen Actors Guild, took vocal lessons, visited every agent she could find, and even read magazines like The Hollywood Reporter. But before she knew it, a year had gone by and she was no closer to being a success than she had when she got there. A very discouraged Marjorie Massow took a job in a delicatessen. She was in charge of buying supplies. One day she went to a wartime food auction and a man took notice of her. The following day, the rich Hollywood restaurant supply distributor arrived at the delicatessen. He introduced himself as Leon DeMars. I noticed you at the auction, he said, and I got your name from the auctioneer. I can get you the supplies you need. And he did just that, and soon the two became friends. But he was friendly with her family as well. Occasionally he would take Marjorie and her sister to the ballet. One day he came to visit her at home and found her crying, asking her mother what was wrong. She told him... Her heart was set on getting into pictures. She isn't going anywhere in spite of years of drama study. So she wants to be in pictures, DeMar said. Well, maybe I can help. He also told her, It's simple. I'll get you into pictures. All you have to do is do what I tell you. And before she knew what had happened, she had a job at 20th Century Fox. Well, not in movies, but in the commissary, Hey, it might not have been acting, but at least she would get to see some of those famous people she had been about. And maybe she thought she might get the chance to talk to them. But to her disappointment, most of the big names didn't go to the studio commissary. They preferred places like the Café de Paris. As luck would have it, one day in late summer, a star did come by. Jennifer Jones, the recent star of The Song of Bernadette. She noticed a pretty young girl at the cashier's desk, and as she paid her check, she asked, wouldn't you like to take a screen test? Marjorie answered yes. And not only did Jennifer get her a screen test, but acted with her as well. And the studio took interest, but they had one suggestion. That was for Marjorie to get her nose fixed, which she happily did. Soon she had a contract and a part in a film. It was a bit part and without reservations with Claudette Colbert. After that, she was the female lead in Take It or Leave It with Eddie Ryan and Phil Baker. But besides a small role in Otto Preminger's film In the Meantime, Darling, that was about it for Marjorie at 20th Century Fox. Like what happens to many young starlets, her option was not picked up. Leo DeMars now offered to go beyond being a friend and advisor and become her agent. She eventually learned that his real name was Nick, the Greek giant He was married and had a daughter who was just a few years younger than Marjorie. He was an immigrant who was born in Greece in 1905 and entered the U.S. in 1930. Marjorie let Nick take over her life. She later said, "'He told me I must never smoke, drink, or go out with men. I was never allowed to go out with one boy during my four and a half years under his guidance.' I was only allowed to be with my friends or Greeks he introduced me to or with him. I don't mind the strict discipline because my career is the only thing I cared for. She went to work at RKO. I don't know if Nick got her the job or not, but it was at RKO she changed her name to Madge Meredith. In 1946, she appeared in the films Child of Divorce, Trail Street with Randolph Scott, and The Falcon's Adventure with Tom Conway. A driver? Yeah? Shouldn't we be at the travel agency by now? Take it easy, lady. You'll get there. But don't they have an office right in town? Look, lady, just relax and keep your mouth shut and you won't get hurt. Get hurt? Where are you taking me? Let me out of here! Stop this cab! Shut up! It was during the Falcon film that a minor accident happened. The newspaper reported, film stars injured when life raft explodes in an elevator. Tom Conway and Madge Meredith suffered painful facial bruises when a life raft exploded in a passenger elevator during the filming of a scene for The Falcon's Adventure. The villain of the story had inflated the raft to block the actor's exit from the elevator. The freak accident occurred when the air compressor inflating the raft failed to shut off. Noise of the explosion was heard throughout the studio. But it's time to get to the real story, The Crime. The trouble began in September of 1946 when Marge wanted to buy a new home for her and her family. She fell in love with the home at 8444 Magnolia Drive in the Hollywood Hills. Just a minute, folks. Yes, that's all it takes to visit our refreshment counter in the lobby. There you'll find popcorn and an assortment of popular candy bars to please every taste. Try one of these delicious candy bars. Big time. Butternut, Milkshake, Payday, topped with Hollywood's super-rich coating of the kind you like best. They taste wonderful, they're delicious, they're nutritious. Get one at our confection counter in the lobby now. So Madge Meredith was in love with this house. She later recalled, I fell in love with this house but was $5,000 short on the purchase price. I called several of my family members for aid, and finally Nick said he would put up the $5,000 to complete the transaction. I took out two life insurance policies to protect Nick's investment. Marge, her mother, sister, and husband, along with their kids, all moved into the new home. Joining them was Nick giant so Nick could continue working with Marge. The trouble was, at the same time, real Hollywood agents began to take an interest in her work. When she signed with an agency, Nick got furious and kicked the whole family out of the house. It was also rumored that he was mad because she refused his romantic advances. What she had not realized was when Nick had her sign some papers over the $5,000, she was actually signing the house over to him. She took Nick to court to try to get her home back, but then, on July 1, 1947, Nicholas Giannackles, bleeding from the forehead, and his bodyguard Vernon Davis turned up at a Hollywood police station with a bizarre story. They claimed that they were dragged from their car, kidnapped and beaten. They were kept prisoner for nine hours before escaping. And the mastermind behind the whole crime? none other than Madge Meredith. A newspaper reported, Actress accused of kidnapping man. Movie actress Madge Meredith's business manager told police she had kidnapped him after a row in which she refused to return property he had deeded to her to hide it from his wife's lawyers. An all-points bulletin was issued for the arrest of Miss Meredith, 26, on suspicion of kidnapping, robbery, and assault with an intent to commit murder. She appeared in the Falcon series and with Randolph Scott in Trail Street. Nicholas Giannakis, 38, her manager and wealthy restaurant supply wholesaler, and his associate, Vern V. Davis, 32, both of North Hollywood, escaped from an armed guard in Lopez Canyon Monday. They said they had been seized, beaten, and bound as they drove to work. Nick claimed that, while on his way to work, she swung her car just ahead of his to block the road. Another car pulled behind, and the actress yelled, That's them! He testified that they pulled us out of the car, made us lie on the ground, pulled out guns, and beat us with blackjacks. They beat us to a pulp. When two of the kidnappers left, claiming they were going to collect $2,000 they were promised for the kidnapping, Nick and Vern were able to overpower their one guard and escape. Then they notified the Montrose Sheriff's Station. An all-points bulletin was ordered for her arrest on suspicion of kidnapping, robbery, and assault with intent to commit murder. And while police were looking for her, strange things started to turn up. One of the accused kidnappers, a man named Albert W. Tucker, 29, claimed something different. He said, They were having trouble over their ownership of a house, and Gian Eccles wanted to get the girl in trouble. He hired me to kidnap him and arrange the beating. Gian Eccles responded, The charges are positively ridiculous. I was the one threatened, not her by me. I found her in a delicatessen and made an actress out of her. And she does this to me? That's gratitude for you. On July 3rd, Madge gave herself up. According to her, it was all a plot by Gian Ackles to ruin her career. It's perfectly ridiculous, she said. If anyone was threatened, it was me. He waved a piece of pipe in my face. She said she was at the scene but was called there by Jean Ackles to discuss ownership of the house. When I got there, he had one or more men with him. I'm not sure how many, she said. When I tried to escape, they pinned my car to the side of the road. I was the one who needed protection. On July 9th, she was released on $5,000 bond. Another witness came forward, 21-year-old Barbara Wentworth. She told a tale of being at a motel the night before the kidnapping with Madge and three other men. She testified she saw two guns and a leather sap which I assume is something like a blackjack. And the following morning, one of the men, Albert W. Tucker, gave her $50 to rent a car. On top of all the criminal charges, Madge was being sued for $65,732 in damages. Tucker testified at the trial that he was hired by Giannacles for $5,000 to frame Miss Meredith so that she would be blackballed in Hollywood. He said that he administered the beatings to Gian and that when he offered to tape up the wound to stop the bleeding, Gian refused, declaring, I'll get over this bump on the head in a few days, but that girl won't get over hers for a long time. Madge testified that she was scared to death of Gian that she knew absolutely nothing about a plot to beat him up, and that she had never, never seen the blackjack and guns allegedly used in the plot and there were no romantic implications in her registering at the Valley Motel with Albert Tucker as Mr. and Mrs. Tucker. But Madge Meredith was found guilty on five charges. She said, Well, no matter what my sentence may be, I am no worse off than I was before under the influence of that domineering Greek. It's all a mistake. I'm innocent, but I guess the jury didn't see it that way. All her appeals failed. On January 22, 1948, she was sentenced to five to life at Tehachapi Prison for Women. She said, when they take me to Tehachapi, they might as well leave me there. Everything will be gone. Now here's something that's really interesting. Of the three men who were accused of helping her, William Tucker, the one who testified against Jean Ackles, got five to 25 years. David Klinkensperg was given 66 days, and James A. Hatfield got 30 days. Now, I don't know, that sounds strange to me. On a side note here, Jean Ackles' wife divorced him and accused Madge Meredith of being the other woman, even though both testified at the trial that there was no romance between them. And while Madge was waiting to start her prison sentence, she was also dealing with the civil suit. And again, in that trial, she denied everything. She began serving her time on May 12, 1950. She went from living in a nice home with her family, with her dreams of becoming a Hollywood movie star coming true, to possibly spending the rest of her life wearing prison clothes behind bars. But then a miracle happened a California Assembly Committee began to investigate the case. On May 3, 1950, the papers reported, Several of Hollywood's most prominent names are interested in the Meredith case and indicated they might ask Governor Earl Warren to investigate. Actor George Murphy said he had requested a transcript on the case and has not yet received it. According to the book Zuzu Pitts, The Life and Career, When Zuzu Pitts learned what was happening, she tried valiantly to intervene. She began a campaign, making phone calls and writing letters to various judicial departments, including the governor. Two men acting as amateur detectives, Herbert Schofield, 71, and Charles E. Wilson, 68, worked over a year on the case. Finally, the California Adult Authority Board recommended she be released immediately. The report said... It is the unequivocal opinion of this subcommittee that had Miss Massau been properly defended in court free of prejudice, she would have undoubtedly been proved innocent of the crime with which she is now charged. And it concluded, This case, from beginning to end, is a mockery of investigation, of defense counseling, of trial procedure, and of justice itself. And they called her a victim of a frame-up. Governor Earl Warren called the case one of the most bizarre I've ever seen, more bizarre than any movie. And he noted that the California Adult Authority Board could not understand the disappropriate sentences. Some of the men actually in on the kidnapping received as little as 30 days in the county jail. She was released on her 30th birthday after two and a half years in prison. But our story isn't quite over. She began to revive her lost career in the new world of television, and at the same time, she began a lawsuit to get her home back. And this time, during the trial, Nick changed his story, now claiming the two were having an intimate relationship. William R. Law, attorney for Miss Meredith, said to him, Are you trying to crucify her? Haven't you tortured her enough? And the courts didn't buy it, as the paper reported... Produce dealer Nick Giannacles and his attorney, Cletus Manifold, were accused yesterday of using the court to smear the chastity and reputation of actress Madge Meredith. Not only did Madge Meredith win her home back, but Giannacles was ordered to pay $11,371.85 in back rent. Weeping with joy, Miss Meredith told the courts, I'm so happy, it's been a long time since anyone would believe me. As for Nick, because of his lies in court, he was denied citizenship and was threatened with deportation. Officer Lloyd H. Gardner cited, Shocking evidence of perjury at which the actress was convicted of kidnapping. It is inconceivable that a human being could be so devoid of good moral character that he would willfully and knowingly commit another person to prison through false testimony. Two studios offered her a chance to make a film based on her story, but she refused. She said, I didn't want to do that. I didn't feel it would do any good. Money isn't everything. For Marge, good things kept happening. In December of 1953, she was married to a Los Angeles physician named Dr. Charles L. Carley. And her career took off. Okay, she never became that huge Hollywood star like she had always hoped, but had a great acting career just the same. In May of 1955, she became the mother to a beautiful baby girl named Christine. But all wasn't perfect. She applied for a full pardon, one that she claimed she was promised by the governor, but he denied her request. And her marriage eventually ended in divorce, and it was an ugly custody hearing for the child. In 1963... When Zuzu Pitts became ill, it was Madge who nursed her, cooked for her, and was always there day and night when Zuzu needed her. Marge remarried to Mac Hatayama, whom she stayed with until her death. She retired from acting in 1964 and spent the years after defending and fighting for those people who were being unjustly treated. Her later years were spent with her husband in their home in Volcano, Hawaii, she died at the age of 96 on September 16th, 2017. I, huh, baby, the Lord just wanted to show his wrath in us. I don't know. What's wrong, mister? Aren't you feeling well? You want some more coffee? No. Come on, it's my own home I said no. no. A little bit before I go. This episode was rewritten from a video I made a couple of years back. It did pretty well, but I'd like to share one comment I received from someone named Kevin McClan 3033 He wrote, She was married to my father in Reno in 1945. He was living in L.A. They opened a restaurant in Iowa Falls in 1946. And around the kidnapping, they were both back and forth between Iowa and L.A., there's a lot more to the story than she was simply framed. And then he put eight exclamation points. When I asked him for more information, Kevin never got back to me. The odd part is, I can find no information about her ever being married in 1945. All records claim her first marriage was in 1953, but uh, but I find that a lot with people, especially on YouTube. They send comments saying I don't know the complete story, that they know more, and there's more to it, and... When I ask them for that information, they never respond. You know, why tell the world that you know more than everybody else if you're not going to explain what it is? What's your point? Just be quiet then. Another comment was from Bill Scherer, 8452, who told me that he knew her in Hawaii when he was young and wrote a nice long piece about her later years that is too long to read here, but it was very cool. Hey, if you've got any thoughts on Madge Meredith or anything else connected with today's show, you can email me at daysofcelluloid@gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. And you know, it doesn't have to be about Marge. You can recommend a movie, you can tell me how bad I'm doing, or you can just say hi. I would appreciate it. Or you can use my Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And I have a Twitter page. It's at celluloid days. Next week, I'm going to talk about the 1979 film The Psychotronic Man, written and starring Peter G. Spielson and directed by Jack M. Sell. This is a low-budget movie that was shot illegally in Chicago. I'll tell you all about it. I hope you'll join us. And before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I want to thank you for listening. Take care, and I'll be back next Wednesday. Bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. To Dallas dollars multi multi multiplex. You know it's multiplex. You're stupid minds! Stupid! Stupid! I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture! Can you play the piano? I can! And sing at the same time!